Philippe Sipe, welcome to How They Train. It's always special to have a coach on of your caliber. Um, I guess not that there is too many coaches in the world of your caliber. Um, and I really can't wait to hear all about the training you do, probably in particular with your three big stars at the moment in Sebastian Keenlay, Laura Phillip and Florian Angert, um, as well as just going deep on your training methods, philosophies and, and approaches in general. And uh, I was just thinking, I was explaining to you off the air that I never write down any questions, but well, I don't even really pre-prepare any questions. I sort of just sit there and I start to do an intro on my episodes. And then when I, like, I just pray that while I'm doing an intro, a question sort of pops into my head to ask after the intro. But for some reason, I, I was I was driving back home um, to, to do this interview and I thought, I just really want to start like my chat with Philippe with a specific question. Um, and that rather than like, cause we're, we're obviously going to go into all these like really broad training philosophies and approaches and methods conversations. And, and I, so I just wanted to start with something specific and that is Philippe, what is your favorite training session that you've ever set for an athlete? And why is it your favorite training session you've ever set? Uh, first of all, I wanted to say thank you for the invitation and I'm uh, very happy. We, we made this, con make this conversation now. Um, and I'm looking forward to our podcast now. <laughs> um well this is a this is a really challenging question um be, because i think on the one hand it's super nice to set one session um but as a coach i have to look in the whole process and um it is just a next important step so this is um i wouldn't say that there's there's one session this is um unbeatable or something so this is always uh, my, my view is always on the um complete holistic working thing and um the the session i really like is a session which is a next piece in the puzzle or a next step and so th this is the beauty of a session uh, if it fits into a puzzle and in this moment it, be it becomes my most like session and this can be just a base level session or it can be a super uh intense strength workout to improve the connection in the body or whatever but it is always the next step for um yeah it's like an ascent to a higher order if you want to uh describe it yeah i completely understand what you're saying um something i'm interested in philippe is can you give me an example of um, a time where you think that's like you've really nailed that lately i mean you've had some great performances over the last few years obviously laura philip has won some massive races recently and you know, Sebastian Kinley is one of the greatest to ever did it, do it. And, and, you know, had arguably, he's a world champion, but arguably had one of his best ever races this year at Kona. Um, and we know, we all know what Florian Angert has done in the past sort of 12, 24 months as well. Can you think of a time recently where you've really nailed that next piece in the puzzle session and, and like you've done like a little bit of a training block where things just seem to be, you know, you seem to be nailing that next piece after next piece after next piece? Yeah, but but this is like a in theory a perfect thing where you feel that uh, everything fits together and you you just have to put the next piece and you you play down your cards uh, in in the game. Um, if I I look back in the um, in my his uh, biography as a coach, um, there are different things like they worked very well. Um, what one period like because you mentioned Sebastian um, is when. Sebastian and me, we started working after his DNF in Kona 2018. And we we started the work, I would say, 
in November 2018 and um, we had a super successful year 2019 and during this period we had like a just a warm-up phase of let's say three to four weeks and I think we in this 12 months to Kona 19 like we really nailed a lot of sessions and everything was like working like a puzzle and the picture became clearer and clearer like day by day week by week month by month and um yeah in the end it was just a third place in Kona but still a third place after you had, you you dropped out of the race because of a big injury uh the year before and uh in between this year he he was able to improve his half marathon performance like I think he was a usually he he ran in between one hour and 12 13 yeah uh to i think he, he ran a, a 109 in nice 2019 and um so this was a year where we were able to establish a lot of things and um inside this 12 months i think i solved um like many problems together with sebastian and uh yeah like he came to me with a certain task and this task was solved in hawaii 2019 uh, one year later and uh, this was a super super effective time this is the first example I can give um, and on the other hand it's um, yeah I can make an example with Laura for example when she's um, when we are preparing in winter time and we are we are not um, disrupted by races or anything like this and we are able to work like day by day week by week and you do the improvement steps and you can really feel that it helps to step back, get out of the like media focus, race focus, et cetera. And you um, like development becomes like a linear work uh, of an increasement, like walking up the stairs or this, what, what I mentioned with the S and two and higher order. And so specifically on that Sebastian example, mm. when he came to you to work with you, he'd had, um, a long-term coach in in Luboch, and he he moved away from him. And this was a coach that had taken him to multiple seventy point three world championship wins, and and an Ironman world championship win. And we all know, like, however many other races he he won and podiumed at over over that period in his career. When he came to you, why did he specifically come to you as his next coach? What what was it specifically that he wanted? you to help him with and and why did he think you were the you were the guy to take his career to the next level um i i think there are different reasons why he chose me this uh, that time um one thing is like sebastian and me we raced uh together in the past and we we had a like a friendship before um and the second thing is he he were, was able to um to ha had a look on my work um, the years before when I was coaching Laura, for example, and this this work was super successful. Like Laura um, did her Ironman debut in 2018 in the, I think it's still the fastest debut time on the long distance ever. Um, so so he had like a idea of my work and then we got into a dialogue after, straight after his corner. Um, so I, I think this is the one hand and the, the thing what is special about Sebastian's career is that he's like a um a dinosaur which never get gets old um he is he's in this racing now like if you look back he was in racing 2010 or earlier 
and this year he ended his active career um with a top 10 result in Kona uh in a I would say in the most demanding Kona field we have ever seen and um this like this takes this is a high demand on an athlete and I ha haven't seen many athletes um going a new development and this is what like I think he saw that he's not that competitive anymore with his old structures these old structures were working for a long time and he obviously obviously won the most important results um during the time with Lubos like the two times world championship on the 70.3 2014 winning Hawaii um and for him it was the big goal to be competitive for the next years and my task was to work with the given thing like what what he brought to me and this was an athlete in the mid-30s athlete with hardcore achilles issues an athlete with some athletic deficits um etc and on the other hand like an athlete with an um, idea of racing or a racing mind um i have never seen before so uh and to to bring these things together um was the um yeah maybe the the pleasure for me as a coach to work with an athlete who is hardcore committed to this sport um and on the other hand having obvious or serious problems on the one hand with um like injuries or on the, and the, on the other hand seeing a fast developing triathlon and yeah the, and and this this was our starting point two things that really grabbed my attention there the first one is when you say that he has a racing mind like you've never seen before, what do you mean by that? Um, I, I I think um, that he is one of the athletes who is able to um, beat all training performances in racing. This is a racing mind or um, making good decisions during racing. And um, this is something you can discuss and prepare before a race or in in a, in a process to a race you can talk about the race you can visualize it you can um yeah so so you can prepare your racing beside the physiological side yeah so um and you can uh discuss it and the other side is the execution and being in the moment and um execute the race even if it goes across to your expectations and this is what 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 he's doing very very well by the way all champions do this um but uh this is something which is really raw uh or rare um in in the sport some like a real racing mind um and and this is a i i think it's kind of a gift on the other hand this is a psychological drivers you have to have um to to get to the very very top and then the other question i had from that is he came to you because you both, particularly maybe him, saw the sport evolving. And you didn't say this, but maybe leaving him behind a little bit. He was becoming less and less competitive. And he maybe even foresaw himself going more in that direction. Like if I keep doing what I have been doing, I'm going to get left further and further and further behind. What was it that you two identified as where he was at and where the sport was going and what was it that he was doing that was was you know um, was sort of making the current or the modern crop of triathletes move away from him? And 
how did you try and fix that problem and and how did you try and bridge the gap um, to what he has to do to stay or keep or maybe even become again competitive with the with the best in the world okay this question is huge um and and this this took me a, a lot of time to think about and to steer him into the right direction or to, and, and then or convince him to follow my ideas um but but i think, think i try to give you an insight how it worked or, or what what we identified um f- first of all we, we we marked all the bottleneck things and then we we worked out the hierarchy what what to work on um and um then we, we really um and and if you go then you then you have like three big lanes in this case like the one one side is the psychological side the second side is his his athletics or the injury history and the the fourth thing is for example the uh, motoric education and then uh just just the day-by-day training and uh with all these positions um we tried to build the hierarchy of what's important and the first thing was to get him uh pain-free after hawaii um and then to get his to get his athletics running better and everybody who knows sebastian he's famous for his uh spine which has a very good aerodynamic position but for sure this is not a shock absorbing working spine um and there there were many issues and we we worked on and on the other hand there was the pressure in the back that he wanted to go back racing um and so i had an ideal idea of where his athletics should be on the other hand he was okay when he was pain-free and he was able to 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 train again and to to balance these ideas yeah um this was my my biggest task and um the one hand is that that i have a like I think a nice surrounding or fundament where I can work with and come with. And at sometimes I try to detect the points where I need external help with physiotherapists or another athletic advice or um, diagnostics, what, whatever was needed. And I put this into the process. And um, yeah, and when he was pain-free, the second thing was to, to improve his movement pattern in an athletic way, then to relearn running, uh, to get into... Uh, uh, less uh, impactful running style, which is on the one hand uh, like a prevention of another injury, on the other hand, uh, f- a fundamental thing to run fast is an efficient running style, and this is what we had to reprogram. This is yeah, and still we are not in physiological uh, dimensions, so so there are a lot of fundamental things we had to change. Then we we worked through his arrow position, which was simply a bit radical for his athletics and um so there 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 are issues with the hip flexors or um and all this stuff i worked through with him um and then there's the other thing from knowing it to improve new routines from an athlete like sibi who was in the sport for 15 years in the point when we started to work and uh to get new routines for him was for sure one of the hard things and going into the routines, then you need to have like a success, like just a little success. Pain is getting better or athletic is improving or I'm able to run again. I have fun running again. And these were the little steps which keeps him motivated to follow my way. Uh, on the physiological side, I reduced all his training to the things I saw. They are really, really re- relevant. So it was a an approach 
um, usually you are happy when you can train a lot. Yeah, and and we know this is, is a nice impact on the VO two or efficiency, etc. Like many things, you can do if you're you you're open to volume. But if you know that volume um, brings him back to the problems, then you try just to train what's necessary, yeah, and take the time with what is left for athletics for physiotherapy for developing aero position it and so on uh and this is what we did like it was a hardcore process in like searching for potentials and grabbing those potentials um always with the idea to get to a athlete which fits to the new style of triathlon racing and, and i say new style because sebi was like swimming slow biking hardcore running okay yeah and we have you have to swim better you have to bike still good and you have to have an extraordinary run to be competitive um and so th this was the task and uh I, I think in 2019 we came very close to things yeah like I'm so interested in this. This is like I want to spend so much time on this um, and this might be the single reason why I was so excited to talk to you and, and you've already brought it up and it's this question of volume and and training methodology. So uh, we had Sebastian on the podcast and we sort of talked about you and, um, and your approach being a little lower volume for him, a little higher quality, like much more VO2 max work than he'd, he'd historically done and much more quality. Like he was doing a lot more quality sessions versus just going out and riding for six hours in the mountains like he used to. Um, but then I've just heard you say that we know that volume has, has nice um, adaptive benefits, like aerobic adaptive, adaptive benefits if you, if you can do it but it obviously had some downfalls with Sebastian Keenley where his injuries and, and, and bottlenecks, that, as you described, and that were stopping him from being competitive were caused because of that. So do you have like a general approach or a methodology? Like do you believe in high volume training or do you believe in slightly less volume, slightly more intensity or quality, or does it differ athlete to athlete? First of all, I don't believe in anything. Um, so, so I try to... Um watch things and to to listen very careful and listen means to look at data to to listen to the feedback from the athlete to to watch athlete to do their workouts and this is the first thing where where where's a misunderstanding um quality means that that you you do the things with a certain tasks to solve and you've tried to get as close as possible to the task so you don't do any extra mileage or whatever so the, this is what what i understand when I, when i say quality is to go as close as possible and just especially in the case when you know that if you bike as much as you want or as much as it could make sense from a physiological standpoint but if you're injured afterwards or you don't have enough time to work on your um, ability in in strength movement pattern running style um then it simply is not the right tool to improve the athlete um so and then we have a very um iconic biography from sebastian in his metabolic abilities and this is what i try to read as careful as possible where where is his strength what is something i can rely on from 
his biography and where do I need to improve him to raise races like they will be in the future. Um, so so this, this, this was the task and this is the, the, the bottleneck and the bottleneck, for example, was a like slowly decreasing VO2 over the last years um, in his case because he did a lot of repetitions and training and so my I decided to focus on certain things because I had a given time and I wanted to use this time as efficient as possible to develop the athlete like it it, it is a it, it is an old world champion coming to me trying to get to the highest level again and it's not like a young athlete who tells you I want to work five years like unseen and come into the sport and develop to a world champion so this is a simply different approach yeah and in this case there are like a lot of in, in like and i tried to bring in all my um experience from work with others like and and to to take good decisions day by day i hope this makes it a bit more understandable and so We'll stay on Sebastian for a little bit, but I am really keen to hear about Laura as well. Like I think I'm probably more keen to hear about Laura than I am Sebastian, and and I'm, I'm a big fan of Florian as well. So I always still want to touch on them. But staying on Sebastian just for a little bit longer, what specifically did you do then when it comes to training sessions and and training blocks or training weeks? What what like could you give me an example of some specifics? Like rather than talking broadly what what did you guys actually do in training when you started working with him or when you were working with him in the build-up to the 2019 um, uh, world championships or whenever it was what what were some specific training sessions that you did or specific training weeks or blocks that you guys you guys did together I can try to explain it like from the circle of the year from from November to let's try to say like I think it in in nineteen, um, the first race was difficult. I think he got he got his a penalty in uh, in Saint George, um, but then afterwards he won Chamorin. Uh, then he was second in Frankfurt by by a short lead uh, on the run or like uh, catching Jan, but then Jan uh, pulled the hammer down. Um, and afterwards with with Nice and Kona, so this this was basically the year nineteen. And the most interesting part, I think, is from November to to, to June. Um, so uh, and the the thing was there there was no room for mistakes or to so we we had we we had we had to make it work. Um, one one thing was um we we in the first weeks we focused on getting pain free establishing the best movement pattern we can or improve his movement pattern um, and we started to work in the swim and was like very short but an easy in zone bike sessions on the trainer so um, to, to get these things working uh, in a in a second stage we worked uh, on classic basic level vo2 improvements in a training camp i think we were in girona this year that, that year um, and uh, we we combined this with uh, blood flow restriction training, and we we had an like an eccentric plate with us, and um, we combined volume training on the one hand with super high intensity things to 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 break up uh, metabolic pattern uh, he was used to. Um, so this this is like 
really really hardcore intense if you do like for example bike sprintings in combination with squats um with a butt for restriction approach um and then on the other hand it was a like a slow build up on the run like we we started with like let's say 20k per week and build it up and we just always with the highest running quality um that the impact still kept low and just focused on like run like faster runs were first with 80 to 100 meters walk back and uh, make this work and then the second approach was where he was very unsecure about was um hill reps because he he was uncertain about the the achilles tendon and uh, i convinced him to use this tool to run uphill um because the the time you're you're on the ground is a little bit longer uh in the uphills and to combine these things were were key and and i think he he caught the fire because he felt that this was working and we were able to show in the diagnostics that we made progress um yeah and so we open up the gap in between the like the steady state and the vo2 again like the, this was very close together for um when he came to me um and th this gap was then the next task to fill it up uh, metabolic wise um again because the first races were around the corner um yeah then i can remember a time where he was in the u.s preparing and this was like let's say a bit more difficult because he was away from me and we just had the, the phone or the video call uh, to communicate and keep this learning curve high and then he came back and we had like may june uh, we're working very close together and uh, I remember a time when he was living at our house like together with Laura and me this house was just about to finish like I was um, building our yeah the, the outside surrounding like the um, our terrace um, in the evenings when he was relaxing sitting next to me um, and I, I tried to to keep the quality as high as possible in all sessions um, and this means that he got a constant feedback on what he was doing um, and constant feedback makes it means checking on the one hand lactates on the other hand uh, correcting him in athletics in running style in swimming um, and to, to make training efficient and then we came pretty close and then like for sure the last six to eight weeks uh, leading into Frankfurt were, were a, a huge efficiency block because this is what we um, didn't have an eye on during the first three four months in our work so this this was like uh, a thing you usually build up over years so uh, but i was able to take some shortcuts uh there because uh so we had had this biography biography in sports and i i try to to re rely on things um he did in the past over and over again something you said then philippe was that the gap between his steady state and his VO2 max was very small and that something you wanted to do was make that gap bigger. What does that mean? Can you explain that? And can you explain what, not only what it means, but why that is important to get a, a bigger gap between your steady state and your VO2 max? Yeah, I, I think you can describe this as a potential for training. Um, and if if you're getting especially if you're getting older like decade by decade like the the vo2 drops naturally and especially if you do a lot a lot of endurance work and in, in cyclic pat, uh, like 
uh, cyclic pattern, like pedaling, like running or swimming, um, you, you have like certain processes which in some kind can decrease VO2. Uh, and on the other hand, it's like um, having the ability to use the lungs as good as possible. And if you open this up, um, you have the chance to, to set uh, a higher steady state um yeah and and combine this and the other hand is like a having a very well working base level like base level vo2 uh so not vo2 base level um fat max uh oil like the consumption of uh fat and carbohydrates in lower areas so and then then you go later to the specific parts and um yeah to build this up is a typical ironman prep and uh, I think new racing takes from you on the one hand a high steady state performance um, and on the other hand to be able to go into like spike performances and this is this is harder for older athletes can you explain to me how you go about that so like you identify that you need a bigger like a, a higher vo2 max and the gap between them needs to be bigger because maybe the vo2 max isn't quite high enough to to be you're performing at his best and 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 then that allows the steady state to also increase can you explain now how you do that yeah like you create um like a mask you're you're giving an athlete for a certain time and you you have to make sure the time is long enough that you can expect a certain result and then i decide how this mask looks like and in Sebastian's case, it was a interval set, which we repeated week by week. And it was three times intervals uh, per week. We we worked out. And um, then we, we had another checkpoint. And we were able to see or to, uh, to see that he was reacting again uh, on these um, things. And what, I, I think this is a multifactorial thing to improve it. One thing is to tick the right boxes in training. This can be 30-30 intervals. This can be like four-minute intervals, eight-minute intervals, what, whatever fits to the metabolic profile you're getting. So if you want to, like in, in Sebi's case, we had a very um, low um, VLA rate. And so I I had to make him less efficient um, to work in the certain areas I wanted to, to get. Um, so this blood flow restriction work was really helpful. Um, but you have to choose something which fits into the system of your athlete. So this is not an, the, the workouts look similar, but you have to see what you, what you can ask from the athlete and then let it work for a certain time, like six, eight, 12 weeks and look if the result is there and if you don't have any result after eight weeks you have to decide if you want to try a new mask or if you just keep working because you trust in your, the mask you're giving in and then maybe it takes 12 weeks to to really establish the goals you want to see and uh the other hand is i i think in sebi's case we established um working with carbs in training and racing this is what he didn't do very good um, then the other hand is we established uh, a better athletics on the uh, especially in the shoulder areas I think so his breathing or his lungs um, were able to inflate better um, so th these are like tackling this problem all around and 
then getting to into a, a, a race shape work again. And when the, when you talk about the the carbohydrates, so Sebastian wasn't that that good at using them in training. What what does that mean? Were you meaning that he wasn't really taking on carbohydrates when he trained, or that the carbohydrates he he was was taking on wasn't quite enough, or that he wasn't his body wasn't using it well enough and wasn't efficient at using the carbohydrate? Or can you explain that a little bit more deeply? Yeah, I, I think if you want to get the best out of your training, you have to think about to 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 use the car, the carbohydrates at the right time and the right amount. Um, yeah, with with a certain goal. On on the one hand, if you if you train intense and you have a like a given amount of glycogen in your in your body and you don't fuel from the external side, um, you run down your system so so you have to fuel it the other thing is you can train your gut to use even more carbohydrates and i i tackled all these things and i try just try to set standards high in all cases um and and on the other hand reduce carbohydrates where where needed like with a certain amount of fasting training um especially in the downtime in the winter we did this um and so to develop a mass which is working for him just for him not for everyone else and this this was the the key success in this case um yeah and um as as i said this is a multifactorial thing and if a young athlete would come i try to establish all these base standards yeah? so i would say a perfect working nutrition is the basement uh, this is if you look at the pyramid of things you should do in training is one thing you should do it constantly. The other thing is you you, you should fuel, etc. This is just in, in the base level of a pyramid of, of needs and training. And uh, things like high altitude training, tapering, etc. comes to a very high level in this pyramid. Uh, and I started working through the base things with him. Um, yeah. And Philippe, I know that you you said you don't really believe in things. So I'll try and word this a little bit differently. Current day triathlon seems to be better than ever. Like I think my personal opinion is that 2022 was the highest level of triathlon that the world has ever seen. I don't think we've ever seen a year with performances quite as, as good across the board with fields quite as deep, particularly um, like the, I think in both, like I think 2019, I would have said that about the the men's um, field and that the women's field had a little bit of catching up to do. But in 2022, I think we had really deep, men's and women's field where there was you know 10 people who were performing at levels that 10 years ago would have won them the world championships no questions asked in my mind mm. and i mean there seems to be a lot of rhetoric or like a lot of things being talked about in the in the world of triathlon at the moment largely due to this sort of in quotation marks new age of triathlon and and it's been brought about by a few people but particularly at the moment the norwegians really and Everyone seems to be thinking that, uh, without going too deep on it, that the takeaway is that we need to train more and we need to train higher volume and that we need to train harder and, you know, things that have become legendary are uh, Gustav and Christian running, you know, a, a marathon at 3.40 per K, um, which is pretty much faster than anyone's ever ran at Kona, seven days out from the race and you know, these mythical training sessions and 35, 38, 40 hour training weeks that they're doing and, and everyone shifting across to that and everyone starting to use lactate monitors and everyone trying to train really specifically. Can you, 
uh, I mean, can you clear this up for us? Can you try and give the the listeners here and myself the the sort of synopsis about what are people actually doing at the top level now and what does actually work and and what doesn't work and what is just noise and and isn't actually uh, you know crucial to success and and what is crucial to success as a current day triathlon uh, as a current day triathlete and maybe more specifically what do you view as really important to success in a training program as a modern day coach Okay, this is again a very complex thing, and I try to to answer this in parts. Um, the the one one thing is I I see is um, that we have definitely a very nice and high level of racing, and I really like it. Um, the other thing is that we have a perception which is focused on Instagram posts and stories and just uh, reduced information, uh, and it's not very holistic. Um, but um, yeah, definitely these these informations really counts. Um, and I so, so the next thing is um, the Norwegian state. They definitely do a lot of right decisions, but they do. I, I think they have a, again a very good approach for themselves, and they produce athletes, and they train in their parent in their surrounding, and they make it work. And they do. Um, what they um, prepared over years and years to get this to a level they show now. But this is a process of 10 years behind. And this is, by the way, with all athletes. There's no one in endurance sports coming out of nowhere. I don't believe in this. This is uh, always a thing. Or Now I use the word belief. But uh, this is um, something I know that there's nothing. Like there, there are no, there's no magic in um endurance sport this is just structured number based and um like my experience combined with numbers this this gets a a, a thing and gets na- nailed and precise for example and this is w- what they for example the norwegians or others like jan fodeno lucy charles Charles Sodaro, and others they they build this up over years um to w- what they show now um and th- this is just um, a result of very good work over years and um, the, the the next thing is um, if someone starts to perform better on the on the next level all others start to believe they can do so um, so it was a long term that no one believed in that you can finish Kona uh, faster than eight hours and then Patrick was the first one who did it uh, and then the next year again Jan, Jan was faster and now then the next one next guys came and did it even faster and this is a generation which grew up with triathlon uh, and Jan was the one who won Olympics first and then came and brought the new speed to the long distance and this is a very nice development and if you look to other sports you have it um, even wider if you look into soccer in Germany then then you have 100,000 talents seen year by year by year brought into a system so you have you have a way more talents into it and you can work with this talents with the latest methods and you have people committed to it and and they will produce yeah better athletes and and then you have like uh micro groups working for example the norwegian group or or another group right? and they produce better athletes um yeah this is the, the, so it's uh, a natural 
system and the environment and the other hand is that the sport like the sport of triathlon is a sport which grows and um now we have a like with the successes of the guys at the beginning of the 20 uh like 2004 2005 2006 with the germans so this is now a pushback love people coming into the sport um have, having seen for example um Faris al sultan norman stadler and others um growing up with it and they are very well educated and yeah and if you look now you you ask specific to the norwegian group i believe they do think many people are not able to do for example to stay for a really really long time in camp which is which can which can be really really demanding to stay there like mentally wise yeah um and this is what they have to balance and the same same in my group so philippe do you think that this like this discussion or this really um, hot topic at the moment of doing more of like high volume is back Um, and the the Norwegians are doing all this like crazy high volume and crazy big sessions so we all have to do that we all have to start training you know 32 33 34 hours a week every week and we have to do these really big specific sessions Um, do you think that that is going like do you think that a that is true do you think that's what they're actually doing and that's what everyone has to be doing to be competitive or do you think it's just talk and that it's not really reality and i guess my next question on that is do you think that the sport is now a little bit too focused on more is better oh i I don't want to like first of all we have a reality and they they are very open to communicate it they they have a option and they try to be very open and they put in new aspects. And one thing with Selectate, this is nothing new. This is a very old knowledge. Like I, I, I've seen that the, I think the PhD published on the basement work is 1984, which is my year of birth. And um, it's most of the theory, which is used today. So, so I, I don't think that there's something new. This is just a, a, a spotlight brought there by media because you can identify it from the outside. So this the, the real quality is that they puzzle their puzzle right. And if their bottleneck is the volume, then the bottleneck is the volume. And we we can trust that they do it right because they show the performance. So... But there are like there are a lot of ways to solve it, and you have to, in my opinion, you have to look on the theoretically fundament, combine it with with what you can see and listen to your athlete with the athlete's numbers, with the athlete's biography, etc., and then you create the training plan out of it. So this is no philosophy or anything so it is more to combine a theoretically thing with um, knowledge you've gained from the process which things you've gained from listening very carefully to data to words etc and then build new or make future plans and then constantly checking these plans are they working is the thing i am working on 
the next step for my athlete. And if I, I get traction in this process, I can put on. And, and this is a learning process for, for me as a coach year by year. For example, I know where to grab my athletes and I know the pattern which works. And then you, you develop next levels by it. And then you, you take this to racing. And for example, then someone gets beaten because of there is someone new beaten the others and then you start again improving your system and this is this is the way and what i can see from the outside is that we have people doing things for example staying large time in high altitude or like a long time in a very high altitude this is for example super mentally challenging and um yeah socially challenging and this is something I can't see from many athletes. So they, they take a long way and uh, they, they get rewarded. And the, the same thing on the other hand is um, that Sebi got, for example, rewarded for his work in this. And uh, yeah, La Laura as well. We like we created her way, her life, how, how she is able to, um, to, to get into it. Like she started late with 24, but she made it to elite level and she is racing on the yeah, I would say actual top end of women's triathlon on the long distance. And um, and I think there will be a new horizon with new people coming into it. And um, may maybe there's someone who is able to stay longer time in high altitude than Laura is or creating more speed in the teens, uh, whatever. Um, but we do our very best in the maximum output for individual surroundings and there are things i can get traction on and there are things i can't get traction on and i i focus on the things that where i can get traction on i'm glad you brought up laura because i want to i want to go deep on laura Philip <laughs> because she is without question your most successful athlete and like i know sebastian keenley maybe in some people's eyes is a bigger name uh, arguably one of the biggest names in triathlon history but the most successful athlete you've got at the moment is laura Philip and I, I was thinking about this as well um, a long time ago in the lead up to um, the St. George Ironman World Championships. I had Craig Alexander on the show and me and him were both convinced. We were convinced that the men's winner of that race was going to be Gustav Eden and that the women's winner was going to be Laura Phillip. And we had, if you listen to that podcast, we both agreed on that and we thought no one can beat either of those. Now, neither of those two people ended up even making it to the start line and we only recorded it about two weeks before the before the race started. But something we talked about in, in, in that and the, the lead up to St. George was how underrated Laura's run at Ironman events has been. And it's sort of only gotten even better since then. And so for people who don't know, Laura Phillip, she's won 18 out of her last 21 Ironman and Ironman 70.3 events. And the only three that she hasn't won has been a third place finish at the 70.3 World Championships and two fourth place finishes at the Ironman World Championships in Kona. People, people would be so unaware that her record is quite that good. Like she has been basically unbeatable apart from at World Championship events in the last sort of three, four years. And they've only been, you know, narrow losses at, at World Championship events in, in thirds and fourths. What is it that you and Laura are doing in her training to make her such a sort of unbeatable athlete, one of the best athletes in the world for, for such a long period of time? Um, 
like like first thing this this is Laura um with with her character and her love of sports uh which is the the fundamental thing of it and then um like Laura and me we have on the one hand we are like a couple and oh, we are a couple she's she's my wife and we we, we work this out together like when we started I I was uh, a teacher at a high school and I just wrote down her plans and um, this this thing become deeper and deeper and what what the DNA of this work is definitely is that we we started to work from the beginning on um, working accurate with numbers so the from my first money I earned from school I bought a top and power meter for her uh, I think the second thing was we bought a tax nail, which was brand new, <laughs> uh, in this in this fall when I started working as a uh, as a teacher. Uh, so so this is the the basic thing. And Laura was working during this time forty hours a week, um, and she she became better and better. She was um, yeah her her start was she was riding with uh, two German pro athletes from our surrounding, like female pro athletes. And um, they they simply, yeah, they dropped several times during this ride um, from our back wheels. Um, so that that was the point where she started to believe that she can race on a higher level, and this was her entrance to to racing more in triathlon. Uh, and and we worked very early on with DEXA scans, spirometric analysis, um, lactate analysis all the time and to try to improve her in in certain pattern. And then we added athletic work, we added um, high level education with, um, for example, the nutrition, like in the first year, we, we did a lot of nutrition mistakes, then we added Carolina Rauscher um, to our system, and she really helped us to improve in this case. And maybe I can tell that in history, like when I started, like in history, like in my biography, when I was studying sports science, um, I was ill for, let's say, half a year or a year. And I worked at the uh, Department of Sports Medicine or Olympic Center in Heidelberg. And I was able to do a lot of um, like metabolic testing. And this is my base. These are my basics that I, I, I think I run more than 500 lactate testings during this time. And this, this gave me a uh, background even if this was not in individual sports, this was a lot of team sports, but this helped me to develop Laura the right way. And on the other hand, I had a have an own biography by racing on hobby level um, and doing a lot of sports all over. And so we, we've obviously, we know how successful Laura's been and, and the things that she's done. What do you guys have to do to take that to the next level? What What's the approach going into this year in 2023 for you guys to go, well, we're winning all of these Ironman events. We're winning big Ironmans. We're, we're, she's racing very fast times. She's completely dominating some Ironman and Ironman 70.3 events she's do- doing. But at that next, that next step is, you know, winning an Ironman 70.3 World Championships or winning the Ironman World Championships. What do you guys have to do to, to make that next step so that you're not just finishing on the podium or fourth like like Laura has mm. in the last two years at Kona. What do you have to do to win those events? Mm. So so there there are different things. I, I'm pretty convinced, like if you look back to the Hawaii race, this was 
until it went wrong, um, Laura was in the right position. And when she would have ended up where she would have ended up when she was with this group, like it's pretty obvious where she would have been in the run. Uh, and uh, with a with a strong run, uh, yeah, just see. So so it's more a question of time to wait for the right race. And I think this year is very nice that there are good and great races coming up. I think at least we will have a yeah very stacked field in Ross of Frankfurt or yeah whatever. So it, it is um, our case to to show up at these races um, and hope for very strong fields and i think now we have a nice development with um from kate matthews to anna Haug, um and so on the ladies running very fast um or, or chelsea she was like she was challenging laura in hamburg for a long time like i think no one talked about her enough after hamburg what what she did like i think it's it's chelsea's uh yeah, work that Laura was running that fast because she kept up the pressure uh, for a long time on her and then had like some issues after the half marathon in Hamburg. But this was one of the most impressive uh, debuts on long distance I've ever seen, what she did in Hamburg. And I, I believe that Chelsea's performance in Hamburg was stronger than Laura's uh, debut in Barcelona. Um, and so so if you bring these girls together and um, this going to happen by law this year automatically um so we will see better performances um this is the one hand and if you look at laura specifically we have to it is a constant process to get better in the swim better and better um then i still believe we are not at the limit of the bike performances and um yeah the more ladies run let's say faster than 250 on the marathon uh it's just a question of time that we will see a 240 of a woman could you maybe give me some specifics of things inside that that you're going to be doing with laura so you know you said that you you're always eternally with laura trying to get better and better at the swim and you believe you can you can get even stronger on the bike which you know from the outside looking in is that that would be a pretty big achievement and and we know what the men's field has done with the running and the women's fields now sort of following mm. suit, especially with Chelsea and Arne Haug and, mm. and people like this. So what specifically, you know, maybe swim, bike and run, what's some stuff that you're doing to actually improve? Um, so for, for example, um, it, it is just the homework uh, thing. At the moment, we, we have a high volume uh, training block, which is focused on... Um, yeah, everyday swim here at camp. We we are at the at Fuerteventura at the moment, and um, Laura is swimming seven sessions a week um, to to have this in focus. And every session has a specific focus. So, for example, one thing is to developing her um, top end speed in the swim, um, because we know that the steady state is a part of it. Um, so, so we we work on this and we combine this. Like I check like metabolic pattern on the one hand on the other hand i try to establish her like movement pattern in the swim which is from my side or from my point of view the hardest thing to improve and improve over years in the swim um, because she obviously started very late and she came from a sport which has a contrast in um, the movement pattern like she was doing rock climbing which is a very uh, on point uh, powerment and swimming is a very smooth work uh, with a different element 
and this is this is still and i can see her improving day day by day uh in these things and i just make sure that she is work like she's getting into deep practice that each session is efficient as possible and she's hitting it right and she is relaxing at the right point so this is definitely a nice part we can talk later on 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 like how to relax how to recover cover properly um, when you train that much and the other hand is at the moment extensive volume training so i think she has 33 and a half hours this uh, ending this week and to improve on the bike in that is that because obviously generally speaking i should say when when volume is high bike volume is high that's how you get a lot of your hours of that 33 hours that you're doing with laura this week how much of that is spent on the bike let me have a look. Oh, I like this. Specifics. <laughs> um, I can tell you just a second. In in this case, it's uh, 18.30 on the bike. And would 18 hours, 30 minutes be as big a, as a bike week gets for Laura Phillip or would it would it get higher than that ever? No, I don't. I like, yeah, we, we can do it higher than you, than you just reduce a bit of running and swimming. So um, this is just a decision because we are at the place where we can swim very good, et cetera. So, um, this, you you have to make decisions and um this is for like th this is something um as a coach it it is super hard to do a hard um or a clear answer on it for example today we have a super windy day and usually we would go out for a five hour ride so but this five hour ride doesn't make sense because you get exhausted by the high winds so and then you cut it this down by two hours so yeah and if you cut down a uh, ride by two hours because you you know it doesn't make sense because of the surrounding um and so it, maybe i add something different and we we do something different um so she, she has a little bit modified session um so, so this, this, these are the real tasks, which really counts from my side. And I just calculate how much she's burning during this uh, training sessions. Um, and then I add different stuff. Speaking of this, so you're on a training camp where you're both there. So you can sort of look at everything Laura's doing session by session, day by day, and, and really change things on the fly. But the majority of people out there, particularly non-professionals, but even a lot of professionals, they sort of get this really traditional structure of training that is a little bit almost like, I mean, it's it's sort of based on nothing other than the fact that we've decided to make a week seven days and we've decided to make a, you know, a year this long. We, we get sent out these programs or coaches send out programs that might be a week of training in a row or two weeks yeah. of training in a row or four weeks of training in a row. Yeah. And it's all very detailed, but it doesn't take into account the day to day. It's sort of just like, hey, this is this is your training, go and do it. But then on a training camp like you with, with one of the best athletes in the world like Laura or, or with Sebastian Keenley you're clearly making changes day to day and you might even, you know, not even fully plan out seven days of training or three days of training. How, how do you think is the best way to go about that? What do you think is in an ideal world, if everybody could be coached in, in an ideal way, would it be day to day in a, in a camp environment or would it be a week of training or would it be a month of training? So, so, so I, I want, we, we have to separate some stuff. Um, and this is professional training from age group training. And um, 
I think um, you can over-engineer age group training. Um, so in age group training, this is again this bottleneck phenomenon. You have to get close to things people really can establish during during their training, and the tools are different. So I try like in age like we we run an age group program which is different from the pro program on the on the one hand because you simply have a different approach and we this is what i mean by real individualization like we offer options you can do as an age grouper realistically by time because you have to work and you have to recover etc and you have a family is these are the things and these people like even for the the knowledge about the system is as important as the numbers in the system and um, so there is an approach and then you have the professional approach in Laura's case where I want to approve an 818 on the long distance yeah um, where, where we are looking for detailed things to improve this so this is a really different thing even if this is not very common to tell this that clear um, so I have different approaches for professionals and age groups, but both approaches are individualized on their real world, on their given world. And this is the only thing, the only thing I can tackle. If I would tackle a dream world, I would always give up the majority of um, the individualization of the work. And if a pro athlete for example doesn't have enough time then as i described with laura she was working 40 hours then we reduce the work she had year by year when she's getting more successful she was earning the first euros from the sport and she immediately did tackle the bottleneck this was not the training it was reducing the work in the first years and and then she we got into the work and this the work was on high quality all the time does it make sense for you? Yeah, it does. And then, so when it comes to someone like Laura, yeah. and she's so good right now versus maybe what she was five years ago, has the training changed much? Like, or, or maybe like from the period where she was like very first full-time. So she didn't have any other work commitments. She was just purely a full-time triathlete versus now where she's trying to win win the Ironman World Championships. And not to say that she wasn't trying to win it back then. I mean, I'm assuming that that's always the goal, but where she's a realistic chance to win them this year. Is she doing things now that are different to then? Like, and, and if so, how different is it? And maybe not even broadly, like specifically, how, how is it different? I think one of the really talents of Laura is to bring out a very high quality all over the year, like in her training, like she's, um, she's never not motivated. This is super interesting. If you work with Laura, she, she really loves what she's doing. And then the other hand is that our, our dialogue in between Laura and me, like checking, um, where she is in training this is here in camp i use the moxie and i use the lactate monitor and i just what and and i see her what she's doing so i steer her into the right direction and then we we have added knowledge and this is this knowledge is so different like laura has a lot of things in this pyramid of basics she's doing right like she's doing the fueling right um we have a very good developed aerodynamic position like we worked 
like her running style is a very elaborated running style and we we don't spend a lot of time at the moment but when we step back for example for a recovery week we will put in a loop of just checking am i in the right position am i feeling my center of gravity right so this comes in loops again but we can focus now for example on a perfect metabolism working towards a long distance in summer for example and so so you always readjust your training to what you want to reach the next year and so i had the long-term perspective for example five years ago and i have a long-term perspective for her where, where we want to be um and then it gets into how to roll it out from day one two three four then weeks and months etc and then always with the um with a feedback loop running all the time over it and making it accurate as possible and and straight as possible um yeah this, this is what i i i hope this this is a sufficient answer for you and we touched on the the swim and the ride a little bit yeah. Uh, you know, you've, you've, I, I get the sense very clearly that you, you care about mechanics and efficiency. Like you talk about swim technique and, and making sure that you're improving that. And then just then you've talked about Laura's aerodynamic position. So not only did we spend time working on that and getting it to a really high level, but we also come back and check it. And Laura's running technique where, we really care about that. Like we want that to be as efficient as possible and we come back and we check that. So outside of that, when it, when it comes to her run, what, like, what are the fundamentals? So obviously technique is a big part of it and, and, and a fundamental, but what are the other things? What are the other things that, that you're doing or have done to get Laura's Laura's run to be one of the best in the world? The the answer is consistent work about uh, many years. The other thing is like building a metabolic stability for a long distance race, which means there there are a lot of let's let's say kind of boring things, but still keeping the performance quality high. For example, hip stability during running when you run longer than ninety minutes. For example, uh, having a a consistent running style over a long time. Um, and this builds like these are all elements of um, efficiency. And um, and again, with this idea of tackling the bottleneck is on the one hand, it's, it's, it's the breathing, then the consumption of carbohydrates, then looking what the metabolism is doing at a certain pace you want to tackle. And then it's, yeah, for sure, the athletics, I mentioned that if you do a lot of like left and right pedaling with a like, bike is not very high loaded that's why we can go into this high volume because the load is compared to running way less and um to combine this to a profile you want to reach and the profile is to run if possible yeah 350 on the k is a 240 marathon uh, and and to to be able to make this calculation work um, with knowing what you have to go on the bike, what you have to maybe absorb some attacks, um, or to write down a deficit after the swim, whatever. Yeah, um, to to be able to react on races or to put an impact on the race that you separate groups or whatever. This, these are the things where where you build a future in your thoughts and then you train for it. 
And something I love doing here, Philip, is it's like one of my real fascinations because training is so complex, right? I understand that. Um, and, and I understand that there's no sort of one size fits all approach or there's no secrets and there's no like magic day or magic week or magic training block. Um, but part of me sort of loves the idea of that. Like part of me as a fan of the sport and, you know, like sometimes when we're in the sport, we forget how crazy the sport is to, to people just new to the sport or, you know, even people who've just been doing it a year or who have never seen it. Like we forget that 33 hours of training is more than any other sport does in the world. There's really, there's not another sport in the world that does 33 hours of pure physical preparation. Like, particularly not aerobically, even the world's best cyclists, you know, that would be a huge week of cycling for someone, even on a world tour level competing, um, trying to win it like a grand tour, like the Tour de France. Those guys would rarely, if ever, really do 33 hours of training a week. And and we sometimes forget that, that that, that is actually so insane. And so coming back, what I was going to say is one of my favorite things is to hear about these weeks. Like I just love sitting back and hearing them sort of, Monday through to Sunday and I was wondering if maybe you would be able to sort of do that for me and and walk me through Laura's last week of training particularly sort of maybe made me want to do it because it was a 33 and a half hour week and and that's fascinating to me and 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 you said you brought it up on on her her training log there would you be able to walk me through Monday through to Sunday in every session and maybe just talk to me about it and, and give me some detail and yeah let me just sit back and enjoy it yes we can do so um just one one thing this this 33 hour week is prepared over years this is nothing which would have ever appeared in 2015 with her in her plan so this is something which is a build up it is this is like a like like a dramatically build up um over years and like Nora Laura is now 35 years old and she is in the very top end of the sport and we don't know exactly how can how long she can be there at, at this top end yeah and um for sure we will try to be there and re- recover it smart etc but this is um like this the funny thing is that you look into a point without the surrounding like this is a build-up over years and this is it is yeah so so i can take you through if you like um it's through the week which which started like it is important to notice that the week with the 33 hours just had one rest like one um adaption day let's say um which was a bit lower um and if you work in the training um like a training camp rhythm sometimes this differs and if you have two adaption week days per week for example because of traveling or because the rhythm is set different so you don't come to these numbers and this is a given time of seven days so um knowing all this uh it, it is important um to to know when i talk about it um so we we had we, we started the week with an um like a an easy run um, which was 52 minutes and uh it has two times three times 100 meters uh with the best style you can get with the highest speed. And that means in Laura's case, I think we we are around um, 18 to 19 seconds per 100 meters where she can um, establish the high, a very high quality and then, then she walks back. So this is um, um, working on the pattern, um, working on the nervous 
um, system during like base basic level runs. Um, the second session was in was in four times four minute EB work, um, and we we added to this uh, two times two minute uh, with a with a higher power with like with an overpower work, um, and there there was a swim on this Monday. Um, the 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 Tuesday started with a um, like again with with four minute reps uh, in a slightly uphill situation it was a yeah let's say tempo run um with with uphill tasks of one hour um then we had a easy swim after of of 4k and a, a very easy bike ride uh of three hours and uh the wednesday was a again a run in the morning then we, we had a um, very specific work on the bike which was three hour 40 um where where she was hitting um yeah like like close to ventilatory threshold one and uh which is very close to what we doing doing ironman work uh and we had an open water swim to together with the danish team uh at in the afternoon where which is an uh super nice group and social workout on the one hand on the other hand it's a uh, you can't simulate things if you're solo in camp and going into the ocean with a group is super nice. Um, the Thursday was a, um, yeah, let's say a fartlek swim um, again around this ventilatory threshold um, work for uh, 4.5K. And we had a um, PNF workout in the gym. Um, this was a one-hour workout, which is basically focused on her movement pattern to establish them um, to to make sure muscle structures are worked through. And by the way, I think this is a nice work. Um, yeah, beside physiotherapy, um, this is what we established for our strength training, and it really helps to to have working good movement pattern. Uh, yeah, the the Friday again was a um, fart leg run um, of six times one kilometer, um, which was approximately in between 330 and 325 per K. Um, and in between like the, the was one uh, K in, in between 425 and 430. So pretty accurate numbers. Um, she, she was hitting, then we, we had a swim. This was a swim based on uh, a lot of work with the arms um, and a recovery ride in the afternoon, um, which was pretty easy just just uh, to hit like, let's say 160 watts. Uh, and yeah, set, Saturday, uh, again, three sessions, which was an eBay work on the bike, a longer work, uh, a run and a swim. And uh, Sunday was a... a a little bit more demanding swim in the morning and a four-hour bike ride, and then you ended you end up with uh, thirty-three point five hours. This is a one week, and just to make sure, this is a work we just fitting on Laura's current situation on no one else. So you can't copy something that like this. Yeah. So and um, I can tell you about it, and it doesn't even make sense to train this at a other point again yeah so um it makes sense to 
duplicate the load or but to make it fit to in, into a system again. And, and and last thing I want to add, this week had no media work. Yeah, this 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 week had constantly good sleep. This week, yeah, this is things you you have to add. This week had constantly good food and no deficits at all. So these are the real factors would make this week efficient or not. Like she fueled all sessions perfectly. She went through. If there would have something gone gone wrong, I would immediately cut it down. Okay. Um, if, if the if for example sleep would have been interrupted, whatever why, um, I would have stepped back. If I wouldn't have known that there is uh, days with less load coming after, I would have cut it down. Yeah. Um, so th th this is the the surrounding knowledge um, for for an example week like this. When you say those things, so on a training camp like that where you're doing thirty three and a half hours in a week, and it's a no media week, so it's all focused on training, sleep, eating, living, yeah. training. What specifically do you guys do? Like, do you guys have a number? It's like, okay, we want to sleep 10 hours per night and we want to nap for one or two hours a day and we want to eat, you know, we want to be eating at these times and we want to be eating this much. Is it is it really detailed like that or is it more just, well, we want to be sleeping as much as possible and we want to be laying down as much as possible and we want to be fueling as much as possible? Um, no, no, like fueling is very accurate. We, we know what she needs per hour what she needs to certain like if she's going for example to the ventilatory threshold i i get like we decide what kind of carbs we take we decide which amount she is taking um where whereas way more open is that you eat by feel for example you eat three times a day you have a breakfast you have a lunch and you have a dinner and um in between you fuel fitting to the sessions in between for example um and th this is the key so um, we calculate exactly what she needs in training, but she eats completely by feel outside. Then the only the thing is, if you want to train like this, you have to have a proper rhythm. That means in my eyes that you have to have a calm down after dinner, that you fall asleep very smooth, that you have a good night's sleep, you get awake, and this is rhythm. And this rhythm is what you have to have for long periods to develop. And this, these are things I give a lot, like about making sleep quality high. This there there, there are a lot lots of things. This can be your bed, but this the most things are based on behavior. Like do I avoid things which interrupts me or takes me away from a proper night's sleep or to improve this re recovery quality yeah, am i able to adapt the training i put on my body and if i'm able to recover then i can agree to the session so if i'm not able to recover it then i have to cut down my training and yeah this, this is the important part i'm really this is something that i've wanted to ask a high level coach for a long time so um, finally i'm going to ask it for a professional, that's really obvious, right? Yeah. It's like you're training so much that um, recovery is really important. If you're not sleeping enough, it's going to be hard to to adapt as well as you could to the stimulus, which is the, the, the high volume training or it might be, you know, whatever it is at the time. But it gets a little bit trickier. Like 
obviously when you're training 33 and a half hours a week, you need to sleep a lot to recover and you need to lay down a lot and you need to de-stress and you need to eat plenty. But what about if you're only training like 10 hours a week or 15 hours a week? Is recovery just as important? Like if you were doing 12 hours of training a week, do you need to sleep as much? Do you need that nap? Do you need to, when you're not training, do you need to be doing nothing else? Or does it, does it like, if you were only doing 12 hours a week, would, how would your recovery and your need to recover and your need to be doing nothing and laying on the couch and napping and sleeping and eating, how would that change from if you were doing 33 hours a week? Okay, we, we are breaking something really complex down to a very unspecific point at the moment. And um, everyone has to recover and sleep is the best way to recover. The eating and sleeping are the best way to recover or absorb a certain load. And definitely it is if you put in high stress, which training is basically, you want to adapt. So you have to make sure that you are able to adapt on what you're doing. And so even sleep quality is something you can train. And I think our like our society has the problem because we have electric light, we have a TV, we have a computer, we have a smartphones, etc. That we get away from this relaxation during sleep. So um, and if and I think that many people have a deficit of recovery. So if you, for example, work on Instagram in the evening, yeah, you take away most most of the time you take away something from your night sleep from your recovery and this counts for everybody and for triathlon professional triathletes in specific so they even have to care more so they are more like a flagship in this case so sometimes that's why they are on the edge so they they have to care earlier than others but i i'm pretty sure that this counts all as everyone because people doing demanding jobs like you are at the moment you came home from your job before um recording this podcast together with me and now it's getting into your evening it's dark outside and you're enlarging your daytime and i don't know if you are able to sleep or fully recover to tomorrow and then you're still out of this um natural rhythm of dark and light yeah um so so this is a rhythm everybody has to follow and then if you put a lot of load into it on the other hand as i said you have to recover and then uh, it's super interesting to look into it to to look or if you control sleep for example and you want to make sure that the sleep quality is high so the sleep need is a very individualized thing so some people need nine or ten hours because there's for example, the sleep quality is not as high as it could be on, or let's say sleep efficiency yeah? and to improve this and to get traction on this, to have good routines. And this can be to be, for example, psychological, very sorted. Then, then you don't have to work through things at night that much or you have good routines, having a calm environment. So if if I move certain topics in my mind i take them to bed and um this is this is kind of behavior and and to get traction on beha people's behavior is one kind of how to coach people this is this is the thing where when i uh, i created this 
training is science, coaching is art thing, uh, where, where you build up structures, they make performance more likely. And then you can look into things to improve recovery. And things to improve recovery, I think this is the next big thing um, in a society where recovery becomes uh, or got uh, yeah, to, to an unimportant point. And I think this is going to get even more important uh, to talk about how um, neuronal or uh, mental recovery really, really works. And this gives a new horizon or new dimension for our sport. And we have uh, a lot of options to understand it better, what, whatever uh, it is. And so is there anything, I mean, I guess what it sounds like you're prescribing is all really fundamentals, isn't it? It's like, it's getting rid of some distractions and some like unnecessary distractions and <laughs> making your sweet sleep quality better by following you know, the oldest thing that we know, which is like sort of circadian rhythm of wake up with the sun and, and go to bed when it gets dark rather than s staying up till 11.30 at night watching a TV or, you know, sitting on your phone in bed at, at 11 p.m. for no reason when you yeah. could have been winding down after dinner, yeah. throwing your phone in, a, in another room um, and, and going and laying in your bed in the dark and just relaxing yeah. and, and, yeah. and getting into that rhythm and then doing that day after day after day and waking up feeling more refreshed and then going and doing your training and then same thing you get you get uh, back at the end of the day after training and you you relax have a shower eat your dinner put your phone away go lay in a dark room and and if you just layer that day after day after day then you'll start to find rhythm and consistency in your training and if you can find this rhythm and consistency in your training because you're recovering well, you're sleeping well, you don't have all the modern day distractions, that you're far more likely to succeed than if you're one day you're up till 12 p.m. and then the next day you're asleep at 8 p.m. but then the next day you're back in bed at 11.30 p.m. and one night you fall asleep watching a movie and the next night you fall asleep with your phone in your hand or, you know, talking to someone on the phone in bed at 10 p.m. Like that that kind of thing or like getting home from your job at 9.30 p.m. and yep. squeezing in dinner yep. and that, all that kind of stuff. It's it All of that's going to make success way less likely. Exactly. And, and in the case of a professional athlete, it is, for example, like things you have to do, like you, you have to look, for example, for your income. And so you have to do, you, you go, for example, to a um, evening out because there is something uh, like you have to present or whatever. And, and you want to stay calm in it and you want to distract, you don't want to distract your rhythm by doing this. And so otherwise you get antisocial. So one thing is to read, like to get calm very quick, like to, to be able from a very high intensity in training or in like um, giving an interview, which is challenging if you're like introverted, for example, or, um, and then organizing how to get down and to and there there are a lot of things like um we actually are at the beginning of a development so like um we we, we have a lot of things like we we don't use it super precise at the moment we don't because we don't know enough but i think during the next 
five, 10, 15 years, there will be a lot of things coming up, which are super interesting. And if you look like I have certain points where I'm at it and I'm where I try to understand structures to make them work for athletes. And there's like one thing is the microbiome. Other thing is epigenetics. Other thing is, for example, this um, intermittent hypoxia and hyoxia training in order to relax faster uh, next thing is to use this polyvagal series thing um, to to use or to use wing wave things to calm down or to in order to train to calm down faster and which gives you an advantage in recovery if it always takes you 90 minutes to come down from your day this is something you have to add to your recovery time if you're able to come down within 20 minutes this gives you a way larger room to recover from things and i'm the more i know um the more I think it's on the one hand, the behavior thing. And on the other hand, I know this, this area is trainable as well. And you can train to calm down quicker. How do we make the decision to go, I'm not going to do this training session because I need to recover, which is something that everyone has done or, or does from time to time. And, you know, and then, or maybe you get the person who just never misses a training session, but then maybe you get the person who is always making the decision, oh, no, I need to recover instead of doing this. When do, when and how do we actually make that decision when, no, I can't do this session, this is bad for me, I should be spending this time relaxing, sleeping, not training? So my perception of it is this is one of the hardest things to step back and say no to something. Um, and to change plans in a given system and to that that's why i do these decisions for others in order to make better decisions i try to educate for example our age groupers to take better decisions for themselves in order to get a constant process because i can see a lot of even in on pro level i see athletes having four consistent weeks and then two weeks in a roller coaster and again and so on so the, the the biggest thing is to get into a consistent upwards developing system and this upward developing system doesn't mean you don't you can't do sponsor work you can't meet friends or whatever that means that you have to have like 80 or 90 percent of very good rhythm and then a little bit less outside for example having a movie together with friends or enjoying an evening out or having a sponsorship um uh, appointment whatever um which which distracts this upward process is to come to a steady working day-by-day process and this is very healthy so and and there, there are many things going on to it and we are at the moment at the behavior side and i think there is a technical side coming a side where where we have some very um let's say not very precise measurements like a whoop or like everything coming from garmin or whatever this is this is not very accurate um and you can't like if you want to have a high measurement quality you use it's hard uh to trust in these uh things but I think there are things coming up which are way more accurate um, to give people feedback. And the second and the last thing I can tell you, it's like we have to um, 
first of all, we have to accept that we have a deficit in there. Like the most modern Western lifestyles are not very healthy. And um, because there's a late TV show, et cetera, et cetera. And to, to get out of this or to see that there is a problem and what impact this kind of behavior has on my performance side, like just sleeping less. And I think uh, I, I read a lot. I, if you start with standard literature to, to sleeping like dim and, uh, and other guys, um, then you, you will see that there are not many people like I think less than 5% of the population are able to sleep less than seven hours. Um, so, so if you count through, then there are 95 people, they should at least sleep seven hours and many people have a deficit from it. And, and this is something we try to do better in, in high performance sports, or, but at least in age group sport, it, it should have the same, like having a better quality in life. Um, and, and then you have things like what I mentioned um, to, to get um, a deeper insight to understand your system better um, by things like, am I able to recover what I'm doing yeah, by for example, having a um, epigenetic analysis or or having like specific data looking at your neuronal or biological stress levels, um, yeah, et cetera. Another subject I like to touch on a lot, um, mainly because I think that talking about it matters. Um, and I think from your perspective, it's going to be really interesting and, and maybe based off a, an Instagram post I saw of uh, Sebastian Keenley the other day made me, you know, again, it was another one of those things where it's like, I should ask Philippe about this. Body weight in triathlon and, and weight in, in general when it comes to endurance sport. Do you talk about body weight with your athletes? Is it something you think about? Does it matter? Do you guys try and – are you guys like thinking that – you know, oh, if we can weigh this, this will be good to race at. Or do you not even talk about, you know, the, the in quotation marks, race weight? Um, and does any part of your training weeks or your diet, um, does any of it, is any of it dictated to by wanting to hit certain numbers on a, on a scale? Okay, this is a good point to, to um, make a few things very clear. Um, the Sebi, Florian, and Lisa, they are not my athletes anymore because my my things are like my boxes are ticked. Like Sebi is, we we decided way before Kona that our coach athlete relationship is gonna end with Kona. And what Sebi is doing now is on his own. This is important because I have a different approach, and I would like what he's doing with the scale and what he's doing on Instagram. It's important that is this is his own experiment. Um. I think it makes sense to discuss on body composition and a body composition which provides a good performance. I, I think it's absolutely not helpful to aim something on a scale, especially when you are in high training volume um, or just to establish, to make sure the energy management is working. So this is a constant control you have and you want to control that you are not losing any active muscle mass. And maybe you, in or in Laura's case, we 
added weight for her when we started triathlon because we saw on the dexter scan that she simply had not enough muscle mass on her legs for higher bike powers so so we controlled added two kilogram of muddy, uh, lean body uh, muscle mass uh, in a process where we stepped back in endurance training for a few months um, just to in order to have better bike powers um, so this is the answer that you you find a, a way where well-being and performance is working very well together and um, luckily we are not performing for uphill races where where every gram counts like in a ra race like hawaii like for sure it's nice to have not a lot of fat mass um, but on the other hand if you have one kilogram more of muscle mass this this i think in my eyes it is an advantage for racing do you think that because of cycling and running, two sports where to be like for cycling, the, the most famous people are the, the Grand Tour winners, you know, Lance Armstrongs, um, Chris Frooms, people like that. And then for running, the, the most famous people in, in long distance running are the really good marathoners like Elude Kipchoge or Haley yeah. Gebrselassie or whoever it is in your country. Yeah. And for those two sports, weight does matter. Like uh, I know it might be hard to hear, but ultimately you can't be the best in the world at that if you're not very very skinny whereas triathlon has never appeared to be that way like you've never if you look at every person to ever win kona or every person to ever win the 70.3 world championships you don't have to be one of the five skinniest people on the start line to to be a chance you can actually weigh 10 kilos more than someone and beat them whereas it's very unlikely that you can go and weigh 10 kilos more than Eliud Kipchoge and, and beat him in a marathon or 10 kilos more than Jonas Vinegard and beat him to the top of a mountaintop finish at the Tour de France. It sort of doesn't happen in those races. So why is that different in triathlon? Um, there, there, there are different answers. Like if you look at the pro tour, for example, it is that you have a lot of climbing meters um, at the Tour de France. And this is about energy energy consumption and um power output per kilogram going this long passes up um and in running i'm pretty sure it is about impact um and in triathlon we have a lot more influences because of the three sports with swim bike and run you have to it is a combination of three endurance sports then you have a highly technical ability like it is more like what per cda on on a time trial course like hawaii which has just one cornering and not like climbing is irrelevant outside harvey and even at harvey it is not a real climb this is still a time trial um so this the weight plays definitely a role but not this high category role and i think even like for a time trial it is helpful to be like around 70 kilogram, maybe for more or for like, like, like 72 plus three minus three, whatever could be somewhere into the optimum for Hawaii. Um, like with working muscle mass CDA, what I know at the moment. Yeah? And um, this is the combination of these three sports. Uh, and this is highly about uh, consumption, high steady state, having the ability to attack, ha having the, the ability to 
uh, run a marathon. And I think we have a nice phenomenon that like the, the marathon or all Ironman marathons are relatively slow combined with the world record. The world record is 35 minutes faster on a marathon than we see an Ironman. And if you look at mid-distance or on short distance, we are pretty clo uh, way closer to, to the, the running times um, in the elite field. And if you have the singular sport. Another question that I haven't touched on for God, it would it would have to be ten or so weeks, I reckon. But but I I, I sort of save this question for the right people. I um I try and avoid it a little bit, but for the right people, I love to talk about doping because I think with any endurance sport to to sort of not talk about it might not be doing the history of the sports justice. Um, and I guess my main question for you, Philippe, is. Do you believe that triathlon at the top level is a clean sport or or do you think that it's highly likely that some people, maybe lots, maybe one, uh, are probably doping to to get, you know, world-class results? I think class results in triathlon are possible to achieve um, with without doping. And I'm super sure that we have a pretty clean elite um, in triathlon. Um, I can't speak for other sports, but one thing is for sure, um, the more money gets involved, the, the higher thing that you will have these issues. And we had them in the past and it is a phenomenon we have to deal with. And I can say like, we have to be aware that there are of fairness, like rules, and we have to establish rules. And I think this is a, um, we have to have and ethics standards um, for all endurance sports because it it is a topic and it is a topic since we have the Tour de France. It is a topic since we have like in most sports, in soccer, in, in all sports, we have to talk about it. We have, uh, I think there shouldn't be a dogma, but we should tackle this problem um, with the smartest heads in our sport to have a intelligent answer to a problem you will never get to zero but to keep it as small as possible and one thing i'm as a teacher i'm convinced that we start to educate people very early in life and um, we have to talk about ethics and we have to talk about um, what the um now, now I get to limits of my my English language um, or my 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 spoken English um, to describe it as sensitive as it has to be. Um, that we develop personality, um, which makes a system less fragile for asks like doping. So, an anti-fragile personality is the best insurance not to get into anything like a doping case yeah and um for me it's if i would assume that there is doping or i wouldn't have a chance to develop my athletes the way um to the very best level um i would give up just quickly a side note from doping um me and philippe have been talking for a few weeks now because we've been you know, we've organized this podcast about five or six times and one of us had to bail, you know, I'd bail once and then Philippe would bail once because we had other stuff on. And something that we've been talking about off air is that Philippe goes, oh, you just 
I want it clear that my English isn't very good and I'll try my best, but, but I might not be very good at it like because it's an English podcast. And then I was like, oh, that's all right. And we started talking off air before the podcast. And I was like, your English is literally better than mine. Like you're, you've already used a few words that I barely know the meaning to. And it was just funny there, Philippe, that you used the word dogma, which I think I said in my head, I'm like, oh, good word. Like that's a good word. And then four minutes later or four seconds later, you're sort of like, oh, this is this gets to the, the limit of my of my English. And I was just like, oh, <laughs> just really funny again that your English is very good and, and not something you have to worry about at all. Because, um, yeah, I, I, dogma is the kind of word that I would have to Google. Um, that's, how, that's how good your English is. But back to doping. If you had an athlete come to you, like let's say two examples, right? If you had an athlete come to you and say, hey, Philippe, I'm thinking about doping. I, I I would really like to to do it. I like I wanna I just I just wanna I, I, I'm not happy with the results I'm getting. I think other people are doing it. Um I, I'm gonna do it. What what would you say to them? This is like for, for first of all, I'm pretty sure like in I built relationship with my athletes and um and I'm sure that uh, working relationship um include this question because um we we are worked on um and this is now a missing word what the right like in germany we say wert um and and this is we we build a reliable relationship where where the athlete can rely and we are based on a ethic together working fundament and like going into things which are not allowed which are in the area of getting an advantage of others which is not part of our sport world um is not part of the work so that's why i think we need an like an let's say anti-dope or a doping prevention program to understand what the um real meaning of a fair sport like performances is and if you get to the point then there's something really really wrong and i never had something like this but you can imagine that (laughs) this this athlete wouldn't be my athlete anymore um and we we would have to talk very closely and properly and um or take it it taken thoughts like this to the outside because I think this can be a real problem if people think or or I, I'm really sure like if athletes like Laura or Sebi or Florian or they are all they are possible or they are able to enter um into the elite of our sport and they all of them they are no prototypes of endurance athletes like laura she started with in in the mid of her 20s with swimming and she made it into a group of let's say 10 to 15 athletes getting into a world elite level in the on the female side and this gives me the strong confidence that this is possible and imagine laura would have been educated in the sport like way earlier or you do some fundamental things you you know you just can develop in the teens you really can develop in the teams besides knowing about uh theories like the plasticity of the neuromass uh neuronal system and and other things you you can uh 
like the, the the idea of learning or deep practice is way more developed than in the 90s for example um then i'm pretty sure that we don't have this problem um but knowing the how the yeah how human beings are that there are cases so this this is another truth we have to face and we have to tackle it and we have to have a dialogue about it and then probably my last question to to finish up the podcast philippe even though i could ask you probably another two hours worth of questions is (laughs) specific to this year so let's talk about the men's and the women's races at at the ironman world championships this year our our biggest event do you firstly a, a question specific to you and Laura, do you guys shape any of your training about ways to beat specific people? Like, do you guys go, well, three years ago to beat Daniela Reef, we have to be able to ride this fast because if we don't, Daniela Reef's going to be 15 minutes ahead of us off the, off the bike and we're not going to be able to, you know, catch her on the run. So we need to be doing these things to beat her. So do you guys, have you guys historically done that? Or are you doing that this year? Is there things that you are doing because of what someone else is doing to to win the Ironman World Championships? Or are you always just focused on what is it, what is it that we can do to make this athlete the best athlete? It is definitely both. But the first view is on your own performance. And this is the only thing you have in your hands. And you have to get the best way possible you have to the start line in a given time. So oh, there are like six weeks left until Laura's going to race South Africa, for example. And she will be at the start line with our year planning in the best way we are able to prepare her for this race. And uh, this is the same. And there's a longer period with Hawaii or different races this year coming up. This is the one thing. On the other hand, we have a nice development in our sport. And for sure, the the first big game changer was like a former swimmer with Lucy coming into this triathlon thing. And, and she was showing everybody that the swimming quality wasn't high. Yeah. And um, I think we will, we will not see many other swimming like Lucy, but we will have a slight increasement of all swims yeah, because they want to see Lucy escaping by 10 minutes on a long distance, for example. And so everybody puts his, uh, every, women puts her own stamp into the race. Daniela has had the bike stamp for a long time. Um, then now we, ha- we have a super nice development in the marathon, on the marathon side with Laura, with Kat, with Anna, um, with Chelsea and so on. Yeah? Um, where we had like in the past, we had athletes, like let's say incomplete athletes, um, or this is not, not fair, but like we had athletes running extremely fast, but like their bike was definitely not competitive. Uh, and now we get more athletes where, where where you have a roundup in their setup and um, we, we we will see in the future athletes they they will even swim better and still running sub 250 or, or having a bike strength and still running uh, faster than 250 and this this is a natural development and education in sport and the more we look for numbers the more we have a theoretically background the more we have money in the sport which gives people the freedom to work like this these are the things if you get traction 
if you have enough money and if you don't have to run for like Insta uh, paid Instagram promotions day by day or like these short term things, you, you give people the freedom to work and improve in the sport. And having freedom to improve gives a new performance level in racing. And in seeing in racing new levels of performances, for example, what Chelsea did this year with a nice marathon combined with a um, good swim, good bike, and a super nice marathon um, gives others a goal to improve. And this is what I really think uh, are the drivers in the sport. And this is a combination of having an internal view on yourself and on the other hand, seeing a development. But I, I have the question is, how is our sport looking in two, in three, in five years or in 10 years? What Like it's not, okay, what has happened in Hawaii? It's more like my question is, what, what is the uh, way of development we have seen since like let's say the COVID lockdowns we have a nice de uh, development and yeah and so the other two questions I have on this to, to wrap it up are <laughs> I'm going to ask you and I know this is tough because you're a coach and you're a coach of a professional and, and of professional triathletes <laughs> and professional coaches they have a real habit of sitting on the fence about things because they know that there is no one answer to things so they know that there's complex answers and that it's very individual. And so they get in the habit and, and you're no different, Philippe, of, of, of making sure they don't give definitives to things that, that aren't definitive. But I'm going to try and ask you to, to sort of resist the urge uh, of your natural coaching uh, way of, of doing that and, and not, on the, not sit on the fence for me here. With the women's race at, at Kona this year at the Ironman World Championships. Now, I, I understand you have Laura in there, so you have skin in the game, and I'm not going to ask you to take it out because it's impossible. But let's say that Laura is a threat and that Laura can win the race. Who do you think are the other two people who can win the race that aren't Laura? Well, luckily, it's more than uh, it's more than two. Yeah, but that's uh, what that's the whole point of the question is. <laughs> I, I I'm I'm not even going to ask for three. I want the two biggest favorites to win it. And then I think it's Chelsea and it's Lucy. Uh, and just because I know that they are working very focused, they are ticking exactly the boxes I named in the last question. Um, they have the freedom to work. They are consistent. Um, and uh, this is what they build up. And I'm going to ask you the same thing with the men's, but a little bit differently. Let's assume that everyone races Kona this year, that the Norwegians come back and they're not just off on the Olympic dream and, and that they're fit and ready for Kona. And let's pretend that Jan Fredino also is fit and ready for, for, for Kona. And everyone else, Alistair Brownlee, you, you name them, everyone's fit. Who do you think are the two men most likely to win Kona or Nice, the Ironman World Championships? Mm, I name one of the Norwegians, and um, I think I really hope that Alistair is going to make it, um, simply because he's one of the athletes um, being in this sport for so long and taking these developments, and I think he is a very smart guy, and if he takes the learnings from the last two years, whatever, um, he is one to watch on the long distance when when he, he brings the things together for one last big strike. 
I've said I was going to ask one more question and I've already asked three. I promise this is the last <laughs> one. I promise. <laughs> and, and it was just you talking about Alistair that made me think of it. Is there an athlete out there that you wish you had have coached that, that maybe you haven't or, or is, still, is still around and, and racing that, that you just go, I really would have liked to have worked that, with that person or would like to work with that person? Um, no, um, I, I think um, it's more like the relationship we create and what happens in there if it is interesting to work with a person or with an athlete. And for sure, I see um, many qualities out there and I think this could be interesting, this could be interesting, whatever, why. Um, so there, yeah, and, and I, I think for, for me at, at some point it, it is interesting to to look into different uh, into other sports and uh, to n- not only have my view on on triathlon um, but definitely if, if there there is something for like a absolutely high performance project um, yeah you I'm in <laughs> and um, I'm I, I'm a yeah I'm super involved in this sport and um, I yeah, I simply love sports in it, and um, so so my my thoughts are always turning around this how how to make it better, or to or to find 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 solutions for the for the given problem, and uh, yeah, and, and and for sure I have a strong competitive edge even as a coach. Love it, mate. Hey, we are going to wrap it up then, even though six more questions have just come to my head. <laughs> like my gut telling me, like my gut instinct is just to keep asking them. But um, yeah, I, I've got to get out of the habit of doing that because there was one episode one week, Philippe, where I said, okay, last question. And, and then we talked for 58 more minutes, which, uh, yeah, probably a bit of a bad habit. So <laughs> we'll wrap it up there. It was awesome. Um, definitely worth the wait. Like like I sort of touched on, we this episode's been a long time coming. We've been talking for, God, probably almost two months now um, and trying to make this happen. And we finally did. And it's, it's midnight here for me now. And, uh, and you're out on training camp where you should probably be doing a million other things. But yeah, I'm, I'm very, very grateful that, that you made the time. And just bloody fascinating, mate. Like that was just a chat where you had me hanging off a, a lot of what you were saying. And I don't know whether it's just because I respect the coach you are so much, but yeah, I don't know. There's, we have a lot of impressive people in the world of triathlon coaching. We have some, some truly world-class coaches. So uh, can't thank you enough, mate. Thank you very much. <laughs> thank you very much for having me. My pleasure. And we definitely have to do it again sometime so I can ask these questions. Yeah, uh, just come back to me. I'm I'm happy. Um, to to maybe we have a second chat. Whatever works for you. And um, yeah, I, I wish you a good night rhythm, and I hope you can uh, sleep a little longer tomorrow morning. <laughs> the irony, the irony of you sort of talking about that. Yeah, let's just get in a nice rhythm and not be on your phone and and on your computer late and watching TV late and that kind of thing. And me sitting here in the brightest room ever, like I've got a fluorescent light on my. We have this thing called a roadcaster that you record a podcast on, and it literally is just like a board with flashing different color lights. It's got like eight fluoro colors on it, and then my computer screen in full brightness in front of me, and it's almost midnight. And I was just like, um, "This is this is not what Philippe wants me to do." So. <laughs> <laughs> Let's wrap it up there. I'm going to go and get this sleep we're talking yeah. about and I hope you enjoy the rest of your day on training thank camp. You. And absolute pleasure, my mate. So thank you so much. Thank you and have a good night. <laughs> I will. See you, mate. See you.